Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. I can't think of a better story to welcome you back after the Christmas and New Year break than this profoundly moving piece from Rivka Galchin in the New York Times. All of a sudden, at around five years old, Galchin's sweet, loving daughter turned into a fiery ball of rage. Anything could set her off. The anger would rise up in a matter of seconds for no clear reason, and over the course of the story, Galchin plays detective to figure out what's going on. That's probably the smartest thing about this piece. At around the same time she started getting so angry, Galchin's daughter also started drawing signs for her own imaginary detective agency. They're often accompanied with little pictures that explain when she isn't available to solve crimes. Rather than leaving this as a cute detail or anecdote, Galchin runs with it. The whole piece becomes a detective mystery, written in the present tense with reported speech. As a reader, you feel like you're gathering evidence as the story goes on, and the way the structure reflects not only the mother's activities but also the daughter's is deeply satisfying. It's a masterstroke, really. Another masterful aspect of this story is the way Galchin directs your feelings as a reader. There are highly amusing moments where she quotes silly things her daughter says in her fits of rage, like, If that ever happens again, you're going to be eaten by fish. Galchin goes on to explain that the reason for this outburst was that she hadn't yet bought her daughter a pumpkin for Halloween. The disconnect between the cause and the response is immediately funny, but there's also a layer of intense sadness here. While being amused by the seemingly outsized reaction from the child, we've also been granted access to something deeply personal, a mother's desperation to find the cause of distress for her kid. That bubbles along under the piece and draws you closer and closer until you feel thoroughly invested in the outcome, and, if you're like me, until you're reduced to an emotional wreck. In that way, Galchin's writing is both heartwarming and devastating. The 21-minute story speeds by before you know it, and I thoroughly recommend finding some time to sit with it. It's from the New York Times, and the link is in the show notes. My second pick today is a story by John D. Stoll in the Wall Street Journal that might just make you rethink your whole working life. Stoll says that thanks to demographic changes and threats to pension schemes across the world, you might never retire. And that might be a good thing. Common Wisdom says that if you're smart, you'll spend your adult life trying to save enough money to retire at the age of 65. Despite that, millennials are often told they're still unlikely to be able to save enough because they can expect to live longer and healthier lives than their parents. That can be a source of anguish for people in early stages of their career. What's the point in saving for something that might never happen? But Stoll is here to flip the script by asking, do you actually want to retire anyway? He says jobs have historically been seen as a way to make money, but they're increasingly giving us the opportunities to make friends and find social and intellectual stimulation. Compare that to riding out your years on a golf cart, and you might start viewing your open plan office slightly differently. There's an obvious reason to stay working longer. The longer you work, the more you'll save for your longer life. But that might not get you out of bed in the morning. More compellingly, Stoll speaks to an economist who says the workplace is addressing a void once filled by children, churches or community organisations. Our modern digital lifestyles are reducing our exposure to other people, and we need to grab that where we can. Not only that, but people who stay in the workforce live longer lives and are at reduced risk of dementia, depression and obesity. All in all, going to the office might be better for you than you know. 
and employers are starting to cotton on to the fact that their workforce will age. By the time you reach 65, more of them will be providing flexible part-time arrangements for older employees. All this paints a much more positive picture of our own future work lives than we're used to seeing. You can find the five-minute mood booster of a piece in Friday's Wall Street Journal. Last up today is a piece by environmental writer Emma Maris in the New York Times that pretty much all of us need to read right now. It's essentially a guide for how to stop freaking out about climate change and actually do something about it. If you've been keeping half an eye on the climate conversation, you'll know that flight shame is a thing. We're taking too many flights, pumping carbon into the air when it's not necessary. People are increasingly feeling a heavy load of personal responsibility for what's happening to our environment, which is certainly an improvement on the head-in-the-sand approach that many of us went with for 30 years. But Maris is here to point out something vital. Shame doesn't really help. The dread you feel when turning on the news and seeing Australia burning and Indonesia drowning is a reasonable reaction to what's going on in the world, but it can make living with the truth of climate change even more difficult. Luckily, Maris has a structured five-point plan for moving past it and into a space where you can actually make a difference. The main point that will hit readers hard in this piece is that tweaking your own consumptive habits by recycling more, reducing waste and buying local will not change anything. And furthermore, the narrative that it can is actually dangerous. To put it plainly, you are not the problem. The problem is the systems that operate around you. And the best thing you can do isn't composting, it's turning your attention to the power players that keep those systems in place. Maris goes on to use an illustrative example. By campaigning to stop a gas pipeline that would emit 36.8 million metric tons of carbon dioxide per year, she would make a far bigger dent than changing her lifestyle to go zero carbon. All this isn't an indictment of people who do want to go zero carbon. It's a call for perspective. Lifting the focus from yourself to the bigger scale projects pumping carbon into our atmosphere will have a far bigger impact and might just squash your climate guilt in the process. For more tips on how to do that, check out the five-minute piece in Sunday's New York Times. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8 a.m. Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.